Recently, I was listening to a radio talk show, and a father called in with a question that he was hoping to get some parenting advice on. And this is a, a man, the dad, that grew up as being a New York Jets football fan. That not only was he a Jets fan, but this was something that was instilled in him as a young boy by his father. And it was a generational thing. Now, for those of you who don't know, the New York Jets is they're probably one of the worst teams and franchises in the NFL, and they have been for a really long time. And so the, the father's question in this radio talk show was this. Does a loving father dare teach his children to root for the New York Jets, knowing that he's setting his children up for a lifelong uh, lifetime of pain and heartbreak. Now you can imagine that these radio talk show hosts had a good time sort of debating this question. And in case you're wondering, here was their advice. What they came to realize or feel is that for a dad to teach his children to root for the Jets is a subtle form of child abuse. <laughs> and that he would be better off letting mom teach the kids about football because the mom grew up as a New England Patriots fan, so anyway. It's amazing the influence that one generation can have on the next. For most of you, if you think about it, you probably root for the football team that your dad or parents rooted for. Not all of you, but most of you. And that's the idea behind this series, that one generation has an amazing amount of influence on the next. And that the most important thing that we could influence or teach the next generation, of course, is not what football teams root for. That the most important thing that we can do for the next generation is this, to lead that next generation to Jesus. And if sociologists are correct, the truth is, when it comes to leading the next generation to Jesus, we have our work cut out for us overall. One description that has been given to the next gen, we're talking about Generation Z, young people the ages of a senior in college and younger or thereabouts, one of the words that's been given to that group is this, as a whole, that they're irreligious that the, the upcoming generation is one that is turning away from God and the Bible and the church more and more. And if you remember in week one, and I feel like I need to say it again, that in this church, I have seen so many examples of young people, Generation Z, that are nothing like irreligious at all, but the passion that they have for the gospel. And so this is not everyone in Generation Z, but as a whole, this is a word to describe them. And before we in the older generations get a little bit too, uh, our chests puffed out as to being a little bit arrogant about our generation, the truth is, is that every generation is a product of what? Of 
the last. And so every single person sitting in this room or listening online that we've, we've had an influence about, our generation has had an influence with this. But to give you a little bit of understanding of what they mean by irreligious, let me give you a few statistics to consider. So there was a, a poll done of high school seniors and they, they asked how many high school seniors belong to a church or some sort of religious group. And in 1980, that number was 90%. Not that they were active necessarily, not that they went every week, but that they could say, you know what? I have a church home, or or that's my church. 90% of high school seniors in America said that they belong to a church. Just 36 years later, that number has decreased by almost a third to 66%. Or, Or how about this poll? the number or percentage of Americans identifying as practicing Christians. So this kind of takes that first question to a next level. Not just do you go to church or have a church home, but um, are you living out your faith? A practicing Christian for this poll was identified as someone who went to church regularly and that faith was an important part of their life. Just 20 years ago in the year 2000, about 45% of Americans identified themselves as practicing Christians. When that same poll was done last year, that number was down to 25%. How about this one? The number of American Christians who read the Bible on a regular basis. Now, I want to point out, this is not the number of Americans or the percentage of Americans. This is American Christians. So if it was all Americans, of course, this percentage would be lower. But, But those who are Christian... That percentage in 2020 was 32% read the Bible on a regular basis. When you look at these statistics, when you consider where our country is, things are certainly not trending in the right direction, right? And for those of us who have been influenced by the church, for those of us who understand the difference that the church can make, I think when we see statistics like that, it can be disheartening. It can be discouraging. I I feel that way as well. But here's what I want you to know. That do you know when light shines the brightest? Light shines the brightest in the dark. And so what that means is when it comes to the church, not a building, not a place, but a people. When it comes to the church, there is maybe a bigger opportunity than ever before in this generation right now to make a difference. That there is an amazing opportunity, which leads to our first fill-in for today, kind of a big idea for the entire message today. Number one, that what we need is the next, or the next generation needs the church to rise up, not to give up. The next generation needs the church, needs God's people to march forward, not to retreat, to be bold, not to be fearful, to rise up, not to give up. Now, The interesting thing is, is as we consider the the need for the church, as you think back through history, 
while the days that we live in for the church, at least in America, might be difficult and tenuous, they're, they're far from being the worst for the Christian church. In fact, 2,000 years ago, when the Christian church was just getting launched, the circumstances around it, the, I guess, likelihood that the church would survive, well, that likelihood was far less than it is now because of some of the circumstances they were going for, through. Let me share with you a few things about the first century church. First of all, what was going against them is that there were very, very few Christians in all of the world at the time. Maybe a hundred Christians. This is the time right after Jesus died and rose again. 120, 100 Christians in the entire world. This is a very, very small movement. Number two, the leaders of the church were not influential or wealthy. They weren't people in high positions or with lots of money. The leaders of the church were fishermen, a former tax collector, just regular people. These were the ones that were going to lead the church into the future. Number three, the government that at the time, the Roman government had made Christianity illegal. It's, it's kind of hard for a religious movement to gain speed and to grow when there's a good chance you'll be executed for joining it. This was the reality of the first century church. And number four, <clears throat> Jesus was leaving. The leader was leaving, not necessarily he'd be with them in spirit, but physically speaking, he'd be leaving. Okay, 2,000 years ago, do you know why you know about Jesus? Do you know why we're here? In part, because the early Christian church did not just survive, they thrived. In spite of these circumstances, they thrive so that now when you look back on it over that time, millions and millions and millions of people have come to know that Jesus is their hope, that Jesus is their savior, that Jesus changes everything. And if you're interested in kind of what happened in that early Christian church, there's a, a book in the Bible, it's called um, Acts, or it's short for the Acts or the Actions of the Apostles of the early Christian church. It is a man named Luke's historical account of what happened with the early Christian church during a time of very difficult circumstances. And I think there's a lot to learn from that book. There's a lot to learn from those early Christians. And what I'd like to do to start today is kind of take you back to the moment where the church in that culture and in this world was launched. Let me give you a little bit of context. So Jesus rose from the dead after having died on the cross. And some of you might know this, but for 40 days, he stuck around in the flesh and he appeared to people to prove to them that he rose from the dead. Well, after 40 days, he then physically ascended into heaven. And right before he did that, he made sure to share with the gathered church, it wasn't a lot of people, the gathered church, what their purpose and mission should be on earth. Here's how Luke records it in Acts chapter one. 
Here's what Jesus told them. You, my people, the church, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're not gonna have to do this work on your own. The Holy Spirit is going to work in you and work through you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea. That was kind of the the country that Jerusalem was a part of, Samaria, that was a neighboring country, and then finally to the very ends of the earth. Jesus made it clear that when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to being a part of the church, our main mission is this, that God has called the church to go, to go out and to share the good news of Jesus. I think this is something that continuously we need to be reminded of. We talk about it a lot here because the human nature in us is that when we come to know Jesus as our savior, and especially as that news becomes something that we get used to, that church can become a place that we just come to, get fed, and be comfortable. You've heard me say it before that church, this gathering is not a country club. It's not just a place to be served. It is a place to do something together that can make an eternal difference. And that thing that we get to do together is to go and share with this generation and with the next a message that changes lives and changes eternities. A number of years ago, a pastor made a statement that I haven't ever forgotten, and it really sticks with me when it comes to the importance of the church. Pastor said this, that the Christian church is the hope of the world. And what he meant by that is this, that when God decided how the next generation would know that Jesus is the hope, that Jesus is the way. He chose you to do that. He chose me to be the instrument. He chose the church. That church was plan A and B and C and D. There was no other plan. We were it. We were the ones that God appointed to make sure that the next generation knows. And if we don't do it, church, well, it's not going to get done. And when you look through the book of Acts, you see some amazing examples of how that happened in the early Christian church. Uh, I think of Peter on the day of Pentecost, where he stood up in front of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem and shared a very pointed and clear sermon to thousands about who Jesus was and what he did. I think of in the early Christian church, a man named Stephen. Some of you have heard that name. He stood up in front of a small group of church leaders who hated his guts. He was bold with what he said about who Jesus was and what he did. And some of you know, Stephen ended up being killed or martyred for that statement. I think of a man named Simon. In Acts chapter eight, he's actually a sorcerer. And what attracted him to 
Christianity was when he saw the apostles doing signs and, and wonders. And then through that attraction, he came to know that Jesus was his savior and he influenced a whole different group and type of people as he proclaimed who Jesus was. I think of Peter, not in front of thousands, but I think of the, the disciple Peter going to the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And very privately, just with that family, he shares who Jesus is and the whole family gets baptized. I think of a man named Paul in the book of Acts, who ends up not only having his life changed as he came to faith, but then going out and planting church after church after church. There is more examples of how the Christian church was bold, how they, they went with the gospel than we have time to talk about today. But there's one more that I wanted to focus on. Because when, when I hear this account, it it makes me think about what we, the church, in 2021 need to be thinking about and need to know and understand. And this had to do with a man named Philip. Philip wasn't a pastor. He didn't have a job in the church. Philip was a regular guy. He was a member of the church in Jerusalem. And one day, God had a very special job for Philip. Let's read about it in Acts chapter 8. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. Next verse. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now remember why he went, because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. He went to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Next verse. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. He heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. We talked about how as a whole, our country and the next generation is becoming more and more biblically illiterate, meaning knowing less about the Bible and what it is and the background and the people in it. It's interesting, it's kind of similar to this Ethiopian eunuch. And what did he need? He needed someone, someone like Philip to not preach a big sermon in front of thousands, but to come up next to him and to one-on-one -on -one explain who Jesus is, to explain what the Bible says, and here's where we get application to the 21st century church. Our, our third fill-in. To reach the next generation, the church needs to meet the next generation where they're at. 
We need to meet them, our young people, where they're at. I think more than large sermons on a Sunday morning, although good, more than large gatherings on the weekend, although important, we need the church to walk alongside that next generation. And much like Philip, we need to sit with someone in their chariot. We need to take time, whether that be children in our families, but not just that. The church was not called just to share Jesus in our families. The church is called to share Jesus with the next generation, whether that be at work, at home, in the neighborhood, wherever it might be. And this whole idea of meeting people where they're at, for those of you who are new to North Cross or for those of you who um, maybe aren't sure about our church, I want you to know that this has, for a very long time, been something that we've been passionate about. We're passionate about it on Sunday morning, meeting people where they're at. I don't know if you know this, but every sermon I write and preach, I go through it in my mind and in my heart in thinking about how would this sound or relate if there's gonna be someone here this weekend or listening online who knows nothing about the Bible, who knows nothing about Jesus. It affects the words that we use in a message and the words that we don't use it. It affects the way that we give context around a section of scripture, meeting people where they're at. It's the reason why when we confess our sins, we first talk about why we do it. It's the reason why when we say a statement of belief like the Apostles' Creed, we talk about why we do what we do. It's the reason why we talk about what baptism is before we have one or talk about why we have communion before we partake in it. It is important for this generation to meet the next where they're at. And like I said, that's important on a church context, (laughs) but it is so, so important outside of Sunday mornings, outside of the weekend. And frankly, as I did a little bit of self-evaluation, ministry evaluation here at North Cross, it was kind of convicting. Uh, My job, our job is to equip the church for works of service. And I think one of the weak spots, quite frankly, is we need to do a better job. And I'm committing to this. We need to do a better job of equipping all of you in how to have those conversations, how to come along other people, to give you training and resources to be able to go and be the church out there with the next generation. We're going to do that over the next year. Because what I want you to have is the mindset of a missionary. You probably know what a a world missionary is. Someone who goes from one culture and country to another one to share Jesus. Do, Do you know what most world missionaries do before they go to a new place to share the gospel? Most of the time, they spend at least a year to better understand the culture, the language, 
the customs so that when they get to this new culture, this new place, that they're, they're able to share things in ways that resonate with the people of that country. Kind of a little bit of a humorous story. This isn't about church, but the importance of understanding another group of people. Uh, back in the 70s, one of the more famous cars that Chevy was putting out was the Chevy Nova. My, my dad had one. It was actually a former police car that he had purchased at auction. And maybe you know Chevy Nova. This is, this is a different generation, the, the Nova. Anyway, the Chevy Nova did not sell very well in Mexico. And one of the reasons that Chevy didn't think about was that Nova, or two words in, in Spanish, Nova, means does not go, <laughs> does not move. So the Chevy does not go car, right? It's an example of getting to know your culture before you go into it. I really believe that more than ever, you may not be a world missionary, you might, but God is calling us to be cultural missionaries. That more than ever before, what what we need to do is have series like this where we consider who it is that we're reaching out to and, and what they're like and what they're going through and what they're thinking, that we need to better understand culture so that we can take that timeless truth of, of Jesus and of grace and be able to share it in ways that are timely. Well, what happened for Philip and the eunuch? Let's go back to Acts chapter eight. So this was the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He, this was a prophecy about the coming savior. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. These are references, many of you know this, but these are references to how the coming savior would be killed ultimately on a cross. In his humiliation, as he hung on the cross, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself, Isaiah, or someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now there's an interesting backstory to this eunuch. It starts with what a eunuch is. It's a little graphic, but usually eunuchs had high positions in the royal family. And as the ultimate deterrent of doing not good things, a eunuch was someone who had been castrated. And so, as I shared before, this is a guy who went to Jerusalem, why? To worship. Did you know that according to Mosaic law, eunuchs and Gentiles, which he was both, we're not allowed to go into the temple or to go where other people went into the temple. Can you imagine going all the way to Jerusalem, hundreds of miles to worship God 
And you come away from that feeling like an outcast, feeling like your life role, where you're at in life is not worthy of God and his love. Is it any wonder why on the way home, he's searching scripture, trying to figure this out while he, he's reading Isaiah on the way. And he comes to these passages about this, this person who would come and he would be slaughtered like a lamb for the sins of the world. You see, as that eunuch traveled, he was wondering about his value and his worth and what sort of relationship he had with God. And then Philip had the amazing opportunity, as it says in that very last line of the section, to tell him the good news about Jesus. Wondering about value and about worth, that's not just an Ethiopian eunuch thing. It's a Generation Z thing. It's a millennial thing. It's a Generation X thing. It's a boomer thing. Maybe a little less of the boomers, I don't know. It's something we all struggle with. It's something the next generation needs to hear. And much like Philip, we have this opportunity to go, to sit in the chariot with a Generation Z person that you know and tell them the good news about Jesus. So as we close, to those of you who are of Generation Z, I've got two things that I want you to think about. Number one, I want you to know that we will be a church that loves the next generation. I hope you know that. I hope you feel that. It's something we've prioritized in the way that we staff and how we use our, the, the monies that all of you contribute to the ministry here. For those of you who've been a part of it, you know, and there's some pictures on the screen, you know that we go to great lengths, next slide, to create environments where the message of Jesus is shared in ways that resonate with the next generation. We are super passionate about you, Gen Z. You're not just a part of the church, you're an important part of the church. And we want you to know that you can bring your doubts and bring your questions here. We want to hear them. We want to talk with you about them. We will be a church that loves the next generation. And the second thing that I encourage you, Gen Z, I encourage you to be a person of the next generation that loves their church. There seems to be, as statistics tell us, more and more young people pulling away from the church. And some of that is just kind of what happens sometimes as people get older. But there's also a, a lot of baggage out there that comes with the church. And you know what? Some of that is unfair. But some of that, if we were to be honest, we need to own as a Christian church, as a church at large, that we can do better. And ultimately, there also are some thinkings out there, I think, of young, from young people that, well, I can be spiritual. I can even believe in Jesus, but 
The church thing, not so important. Well, that's not how the Bible speaks. The Bible speaks about how we were never meant to do life in isolation. We hear passages like this. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Talk about the the church as being a body. And if you take a toe off the body, what happens to it? It will die. If you take a finger off the body, what happens to it? It will die, right? So the church is not just something that's nice. It is vital. It is a vital part of your life. And I pray, I pray that you be a person that loves your church. As we close, it's amazing how one generation can have an amazing impact on the next. And I hope that this time in this series, whether it be at home, at church, or if just an attitude shift gives us an understanding that there is nothing better that we can do for the next gen than to make sure that we're leading them to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for each and every young person who is either in the room or listening online. Lord, it is a a privilege to be able to share with them the message of Jesus. I pray that you continue to make that a passion of this church and of every single person who's a part of this church, whether that be at home in the things we prioritize, whether that be in um, corporately as a congregation in the ministry that we do. And Lord, yes, the landscape of our world right now is, is one that is not necessarily easy for those who are growing up to love Jesus. And so I just pray, we pray, for your strength and presence in Holy Spirit on the young people of this congregation and of this country, that they would come to understand that that which they're looking for has been given to them through Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.